So we're continuing in our series called Underrated. For the past two weeks, when we began the series, what this underrated series was about is examining how building deeper foundations through spiritual discipline and also the experience of loss that we sometimes have in our life, it can be underrated as powerful tools that God uses to enrich our life in Christ. You know, sometimes there are certain things in our life that we underrate as things that God uses to really enrich our relationship with Him, to experience Him, to encounter Him, and to realize who He really is and who we really are. Today, I want to continue on that theme by highlighting how our connection and commitment to church community can be underrated in our faith life. You know, a lot of us were exposed to a Western concept of individuality and of self-propelled spirituality. Uh, We're so used to common themes like spirituality is my business or spirituality is something that's very personal and it doesn't need to be out there. And sometimes with that kind of mindset, what we do is we underrate the importance and the vitality of community and being connected with community and what that brings into our experience of God. I'm sure each one of us have stories about our experiences with church community, whether it's a direct experience that you've had for yourself, whether it's through other friends that you've heard. And so before we get any further, I want us to break the ice right at the beginning. And we're going to go into our breakouts. And as we go into our breakout groups, this is, I want to start us off by thinking about this. I want us to think about the topic of community, and in particular, church community, with the following questions. What did you experience, or do you, what do you remember to be a significant life-giving experience in church community? I know that the range varies in terms of what we experience in community, in church community. But today, I want us to focus on what aspects of church community did you experience to be life-giving? If you feel like, you know, I haven't really been part of a church community in a while and I don't really have so many experience to share, you can also share this question then. Why do you think that even Jesus, God himself... Why do you think he was intentional about forming and being part of a small group throughout his earthly ministry? We see Jesus do the very same thing, that he makes an intentional and becomes part of an intentional small group community throughout his whole ministry here on earth. Why do you think that was? Why was that part of, of Jesus' values that he instilled for himself and he instills for us as well. You know, there are many, many uh, benefits of being part of a church community. And we could do an entire series just on church community and what those benefits are and what, how God uses that. And it still wouldn't cover the whole depth of its absolute importance. The, the entire Bible, when you read through it, it's always in community that we see people being transformed, changed, shifted towards where they need to be. 
It shows numerous passages where, where Jesus mentioned, God mentions in the Old Testament, how community is an essential part of our health and our relationship with Him. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure if you guys remember, but I shared the sermon with an illustration about three brick makers. And I, I, sh- I shared through that how their vision really dictated how they understood why they were doing such menial tasks at times. And so what we noticed is that the, brick make, the first brick maker who just simply thought, hey, we're just making bricks because that's what we're called to do. Uh, those people who are led by that kind of limited vision, they can't see past the difficulty. They can't see past the monotonousness uh, of brick making. All they see is we just have to do this and they don't see a bigger picture. But we also saw a different brick maker who understood this menial task led towards building a wonderful cathedral. And that vision is what directed this brick maker in doing the tedious work of doing these things and seeing the importance of it because he understood that that is what goes into creating a beautiful cathedral. It's with that same vision We see Paul echo the same words that we see in Ephesians 2, 21 to 22. And in this, he says this, In him, the whole building is joined together and rise to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, Paul, he understood the difficulty of community. When we, when we read all of his letters that he wrote to these church communities at that time, there were so many difficulties that were going on. In fact, sometimes when you read it, you, you think to yourself, why would anyone want to be part of a church community when there's so much difficulty and so much dirt always being drawn up? And this is the vision that Paul gives to the people of Ephesus, letting them know because God is building us. We're not just doing this, uh, this tedious task. We're not just putting ourselves in a situation where we don't need to be rubbed the wrong way or other people getting under our skin and, and, and things being so complicated and complex in community relationships. He says, here's the bigger picture. God is bringing us together. And as he does, he's He's creating in us together, not just us personally. Us together, he's making us a building in which, he says, God lives by his spirit. You know, there's a mystery in which Paul shares this. He says, in the greater us, not just me individualistically, but he says, in the greater us, this gathered, connected community, God not only builds us up, but then as we are gathered together, as we are connected together, as we're invested in one another, he says, he fills us with his spirit. Brothers and sisters, for the past two years, we've experienced isolation and social distancing. And I'm not one to over-spiritualize things, but I do believe Satan has used this aspect of the pandemic 
to draw out of us some indifference, to draw out of us some apathy in being intentional and continually connecting with a gathered community. You know, sometimes when we look at our faith and, and what we're trying to experience in our faith and our relationship with God, and the emptiness that we feel like, is this really doing anything? And, and if God is really real, why don't I feel anything inside? Some of that vitality Paul describes in this passage as being met by allowing God to build us together. Allowing God to shape us, to prune us so that we fit and to draw out of us some things and some rough edges that need to be pruned. And that part, that sharpening process is uncomfortable. But as we do, and as we allow God to work that in us, what he promises is, and you are filled by God's Spirit. Isn't that what each and every one of us desire? For those of you who are here, whatever your motives, intentions may be, there is a desire that's deep within that, that makes us think, is God really who He says He is? What does it feel like to be filled by His Spirit? To know that He really is God. And the filling of the Spirit to bring purpose, to bring energy, to bring vitality, significance to our life. Don't we want to experience God more deeply and more powerfully? Don't we want to experience the power of Christ's name, bringing the healing and the transformation that the Bible says that he brings? I'm sure for most of us, that sounds good. But the only problem is that although we desire that fruit, the problem with community at times is it can really be invasive, right? Community kind of like worms itself sometimes under our skin in areas that we don't want community to go. You see, we don't like it when community or experience of relationships become, uh, continues to encroach in certain areas of our life that we prefer to keep private, that we prefer to keep personal, that we say those areas you're not invited into, those areas you do not touch. And when community begins to encroach on that and begins to scratch at that surface because it's already sensitive, because it's already an area that we don't want community to be involved with, we often disengage. Now, I, I want you to hear me in saying this. I am not saying that no part of our life can be private, that no part of our life can be personal. That is not what I'm saying. It is healthy, right, to keep certain aspects and areas of our life private. It is healthy to keep certain aspects of our areas of our life personal as well. But at the same time, we need to remember that God uses community to help prune the other areas. He prunes us to sharpen us. Sometimes there are certain doors in our life, in our heart, in our very deepest being that God begins to knock on because those doors need to be opened. Because behind that door, 
lies a brokenness that God wants to heal. Behind those doors is locked this darkness in our hearts that God uses community to draw out so that He can heal it. He can meet with you in that place and you can allow Him to transform that area of your life. See, as invasive as it feels, as it feels at times, God uses community in this kind of way and it should not be underrated in its importance of the vitality that it brings to our spirit and to our relationship with God. So I want to draw us now to our main passage for today. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 to 12. And in this passage, we see the Apostle Paul sharing how sometimes community can get under the skin and how God uses that to bring that deeper healing in that brokenness that begins to touch every area of our life. Let's read it together. I'll be reading from the NIV. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 to 12. I'll read it for us. It reads this. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for giving us your word as we journey through it together. I pray, Father, that you'll continually knock on that one locked door of our hearts where lies hidden an aspect of our brokenness that you want to draw out so that you can bring healing, so that you can bring health, so that you can bring vitality in our relationship with you to experience you more deeply and to experience the life you intend for us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we don't know exactly what was going on in the Corinthian community at this time and why Paul had to write such a harsh letter to them. But most scholars, they believe this. They believe that there was some sort 
a moral crisis that was happening within the community, some sort of darkness that was, uh, that was being perpetuated in their brokenness. And the whole community, they continued in that darkness. They continued in that moral crisis of brokenness. And it was affecting them. It was hurting each other. And Paul, what he does is he brings it to the forefront. He doesn't let it, allow it to slide. He brings it to the for, forefront and by exposing it, it hurt members of that community because they didn't want that brokenness or that hiddenness to be ex, exposed. They want to keep it. And by keeping it hidden, it had power over them and it was breaking their community. But one person took offense and took exception to that light that Paul was shining on that brokenness, on that hidden darkness. And he did some sort of injustice towards Paul that deeply hurt Paul and was threatening the unity of the community. And so what Paul does in this letter is he brings it out and he says, I'm glad that it led not to the breaking up of our community as difficult as it was, but it led to godly sorrow. See, brothers and sisters, what we see is in community, there is an invasiveness that comes in certain areas of our life because in order for us to be built together and as God places us in this community, there are certain parts of us that don't quite fit as a result of our brokenness. And those areas are the parts that God wants to address in our life. You see, in order for us, as Paul said in Ephesians, in order for us to be filled by the Holy Spirit, that means that light comes in. Light comes into every part of our life. And as it does, it begins to expose those darker, hidden areas that become self-destructive to us and also harmful for the rest of the community. You see, brothers and sisters, it's not just about being filled with the Spirit. We all want that, right? But to be filled by the Spirit and to be fully filled by Him, He has to do operation on the dark parts of our life because the light and dark cannot be together. So Paul, as he's trying to build up the Corinthian community, he brings this light. He exposes that darkness that needs to be talked about. And when he does, people experience hurt and pain. But if in Paul's mind, if that sorrow from that hurt and pain, it addresses the brokenness so that it can bring healing, Paul says in those cases, that hurt and that pain is worthwhile. You know, many years ago, many, <laughs> many, many years ago, I remember when I was in grade four in elementary school, there was this game. Um, we called it like wall ball or handball. And uh, what we did with this um, um, handball is every recess, we'd all rush out, we'd all make our court against this one part of a flat wall of our school, and we play. And, and part of the game was that the lose, whoever the loser was, they would have to stand against the wall, like bent forward with their butt facing, 
your other uh, people that are there. And then there was a certain line that people would have to go behind. And if you lost, the other team players would take the ball and throw it as hard as they can towards your butt. Right? So that was basically the punishment of that game. And on this particular day, as we were playing, I lost. And so I had to bend over and I bent over. And then my, my friends, they all went behind the line. They all took shots with the tennis ball to throw it and to hit me. The first three people, they all missed, right? So I was really happy about that. But the last person, he whipped that tennis ball so hard. And without going into details, he hit me in an area that hurt so much. I got so angry. Like this yelp came out. I got so angry by that stinging pain that what came out that, that next moment is I just whipped around, turned around, and, and saw my friend and I let this nasty, long phrase of swear words just come out. I said, you, beep, 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 and it just went, I know, I'm a pastor, I don't look like that, but that's who I was. So I let out this long list of swear words just at the moment when one of the parent volunteer supervisors just happened to be walking by at that moment. And we made eye contact right after I said that huge sentence of vulgarities. We made eye contact and she looked upon me with such disappointment. She couldn't even speak, just wondering how can this little kid know all of these kinds of swear words, right? And so I was so embarrassed. She couldn't say anything. She just had this look of utter disappointment because I knew this parent volunteer, she was the mom of one of my friends, right? And she just simply pointed to the office for me to go. So I was sent to the principal's office, and I was never before that time nor after that time was I ever sent to the principal's office. And I was absolutely terrified. I'm one of those like goody two-shoes kind of guys, right? That grew up in that kind of, um, with that kind of characteristic. And so for me to be sent to the principal office was such a big deal. I didn't know how to take it. Uh, that's not me. I, I wish I wasn't caught. But as soon as I got there, I remember, because it was such a significant event. It's like burned in my memory. I remember the stuffiness of the room. I remember the smells of the room. I remember the brown color that the room was decorated with. And I was sitting there nervously waiting for the principal to come in and for me to be disciplined. As soon as the principal walked in, he just stared at me. He was like tall, glaring down at me. And he asked one question. He said, tell me what happened. Why are you here? And so in my scaredness and in my nervousness, I opened my mouth to start talking. But because I was so scared, I started crying uncontrollably. Not only uncontrollably, I was even doing those dry heaves. <laughs> you, know, you know, those kind of things. I was doing the dry heaves and he was trying to calm me down. And saying, all right, all right, yeah, just calm down. And for five minutes, I couldn't stop. I was so terrified, I was so scared, I was so upset, I just kept crying and then finally the principal gave up just trying to get anything out of me that he looked at me and he said this, well, Eddie, um, you know, I can't hear anything that you are saying, 
but you're obviously very sorry for what you did, so why don't you just go back to class? And so I did. I just walked back to class. I'm still sitting down, and I still have my dry heaves. I'm still crying, and I can't stop it. And one of, the, one of my friends, she came up to me as I was sitting in the desk, and my head was just down. I guess everyone heard that I was sent to the principal's office, and by just seeing my reaction, they thought, whoa, what did the principal do? What did the principal say to him that Eddie is a complete wreck? And so my friend came up and said, Eddie, what happened? What did the principal say to you? Are you expelled? What's going on? And, I, and all I blurted out was, he said nothing. <laughs> and I just started crying again. You know, when I look back on that experience, you know, one of the things that I realized about my crying and why I was so upset was this. I don't believe myself to have been crying and so upset because I swore. Because I gave this vulgarity. I think the reason why I was so upset and I was crying so much was more because an area of my life was exposed that I didn't want to expose. See, I had this image that I wanted to carry, this reputation I wanted all the adults to see of me. Even though my friends knew that I swore, that's okay, they're just my friends. But for adults, I wanted them to see me as like a perfect student or whatever image I wanted to create for myself. And the fact that it was exposed, the fact that now every time that parent sees me, that I would think to myself, oh, they just see me as that, you know, that foul mouth kid. It bothered me so much. And I think that's the main reason why I was so upset, not because of my darkness, but because I was caught. Because an area that I wanted to keep hidden was exposed. You see, when you look at verse 10 in the passage that we read, Paul writes, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You know, that experience, it kind of helped me understand what Paul is referring to in this passage. Because my sorrow at that moment was not godly in terms of me facing my darkness, but more in terms of my worldly sorrow, in terms of me being uh, upset that something that I didn't want exposed was exposed. By holding on to that and feeling angry that I was caught, angry now that this person has a different impression of me, I saw the death potential that that brought because I'm stuck in this kind of tension between I want people to see me like this, but now they know this of me. And now I can't hold on to this ideal. I was so upset that that was broken. I was so upset that, that's, that it's exposed now that I can't go back to living this lie. And it brought death. But what Paul says is he says, when there's godly sorrow, it brings about repentance. It brings about turning away from that darkness that's so unhealthy 
and that's breaking me apart inside. You see, when people have things in their life that are exposed, it does bring hurt. It does bring anger. It does bring sorrow. Because those sensitive parts of our life are being exposed. But what Paul mentions here is he says, but God intended that sorrow to lead to repentance. See, brothers and sisters, when we have trouble in community and, and as people get under our skin and reveals certain aspects of that brokenness that needs to be repented of, that needs to be healed, the intention that God gives in that sorrow is not so that we are hurt. It's not so that we feel pain. The intention that God does in drawing that out is so that we can repent and the purpose in that repentance is so that we may be filled more by God's Spirit. See, there's a danger when we insist on holding on to worldly sorrow. Paul says it brings death to ourselves and it breaks apart community. You know, some of us, we know what that feels like. We've seen it. We've seen it happen in church. We've seen it happen in our own relationship with our family or our friends that as soon as that area is exposed, there's a disengagement that happens in relationship. But rather than disengaging, what God says is, I'm using the community to draw it out so that you may be pruned by God's Spirit. See, when we disengage, we do ourselves a disfavor because what happens at that moment is we freeze frame our last experience of community with that hurtfulness that we've been disengaged from. And so for the rest of our life as we live, rather than feeling that there's closure, rather than feeling that there is renewal, there is forgiveness in that, we freeze frame that hurt and it becomes part of our baggage that we carry with us for the rest of our life. What Paul asks instead is he says, when those situations happen, it's like Jesus knocking on that locked door of our life because God has used community to draw it to the purpose, uh, to the surface. Now it's not communities, um, it's not community's responsibility to heal it. They can't. It's God's responsibility. God just uses community to bring that brokenness to the surface and that's when it's brought to the surface, brought to our attention and we realize it's a broken area of our life. That's where we feel Jesus knocking on the door of our hearts. And this is where he asks us, will you invite me in? Will you allow my light to shine in that place? Will you allow my love to cover over that so that you may repent, you may let go of the thing that is hurting you, that is unhealthy for you. See, healing, it comes by way of repentance. To let go of our pain and what we're trying to hide, it happens through repentance, not anger and, and insisting why that had to be exposed. It happens through letting it go and saying, God, I want to turn 
from holding this private, dark life that, have, that I have insisted on keeping hidden in my life. What Paul says in verse 10, he says, and when you do, it leaves no regret. How many of us have regrets in certain relationships that we hold? That's worldly sorrow. That's the fruit of worldly sorrow. He says, when we go in this way and we repent, he says, it leaves no regret. But it's not all. Look what Paul continues to say in verse 11. He says that once that repentance is done and once that regret is laid down as well, he says there's other fruit that begins to rush in as his light, as his spirit begins to fill us. Because he doesn't just leave us empty. He doesn't just leave us unbroken. He now fills us. And look what the filling looks like. He says, this repentance then gives ways to what earnestness, what eagerness is begin, begins to in, in flow within our hearts that leads to change. Because our relationship with God is being healed. We actually begin to want with earnestness and eagerness to soak our minds more with his word. We want to worship God more with our whole being. We want and we prefer godly relationships and fellowship rather than superficial ones. It actually sets us free. It gives us a new vitality in our spirit and our life. But yes, there's pain in there. Yes, there's exposure. Yes, it feels embarrassing and shameful. But he says the fruit that comes from it is life-giving. I want to end with this. Have you ever wondered why? I, you all know the, or heard of the 12 tribes of Israel. We have the 12 sons. And among the 12 sons that we have, have you ever wondered why it was through Judah and not through Reuben, who was the firstborn, not through Simeon, who was the secondborn, and not through Levi, who was the thirdborn? Or even Joseph, who was the firstborn of, the, of, of Rachel, who became, uh, who became the lineage for the Messiah. Because we see in the, Bible, in the Old Testament over and over, it's usually through the firstborn that God does this lineage that goes down to Jesus Christ. But among Jacob's 12 sons, it was the fourth son, Judah, that God chooses, saying this will be the lineage that leads to Jesus Christ. You see, what we see happen with Reuben is this. Reuben slept with Jake, one of Jacob's concubines, one of his father's concubines, and he never expressed any godly sorrow. He just felt, it's my right, because he doesn't favor us. He only favors Benjamin and Joseph, so why should I care about my dad? Simeon and Levi were violent. When they heard something that happened to their sister, they just went out, and there was no uh, sorrow for what they done in, in killing off like all these men that did violence to their, to their sister. They just took swords. They killed the men of Shechem because of what happened to his sister. Joseph, even though he was the 
Uh, he was a prime minister of Egypt and did great things. He still played some power games with his brothers and did not seem to try to reach out to them even after he was appointed the prime minister of Egypt. But Judah was different. What we see in Judah's history is that he sinned with his wife's, uh, with his son's widowed wife. And not only did he sin, he was exposed to the public community. And as he was exposed there, because he's a man, he could deny her claim. And she would have died. But he didn't. Despite the embarrassment and the shame that was brought to him, rather than hide it more, he came clean and he repented. His godly sorrow brought repentance. And in front of the whole community, he says, she is more righteous than I. I'm the one that made the mistake. See, when we see that godly sorrow in Judah's life, this is why we see God choosing Judah's line, saying that's the character, that's the lineage from which the Messiah will come. He was the only true witness of what repentance brings, this new life that it brings into our heart. That it felt like at that time, so embarrassing, so shameful, that he couldn't face community anymore. But he goes through with it. And as he does, there's no regret. And what we see happen in Judah's life afterwards is an earnestness is an eagerness to do what is right. And we see that in the way that Judah began to treat his family, his father, and he became the offered sacrifice. He's saying, take my life rather than Benjamin's. See, godly sorrow, it not only changes us, but it also changes the future of our personal family legacy it also changes the atmosphere and the ethos of our church community. Brothers and sisters, whatever brokenness, whatever hardship that we may be experiencing, surrender it. The pandemic has been tough. It's taught us to be more independent, self-reliant. But if God begins to knock on your heart as a result of us gathering together and he begins to expose some of that brokenness within, let's learn how to repent. Let's learn how to give that over to God. I want to invite us into a time of prayer at this time. And right after the prayer, I'm going to lead us in taking communion together. If you have your communion elements, please have that ready. All you need is bread and juice. And the reason why I want us to lead us in a time of prayer together first, before we take this communion, is this communion, what it represents is inviting more of Jesus into our life. It's Jesus knocking on the door of our heart. And he's saying, can I come in? And the area that he makes the greatest difference in is in that brokenness. 
If you sense that right now by God's spirit, that there's an area of brokenness that's very sensitive and you feel the Holy Spirit knocking on that door, I want you to simply do at this space that I'm going to give you at this time to invite him in. Say, Jesus, I open the door to this area of my life. I want you to come in. And as hurtful and exposing as it may feel, I want you to heal me, Lord. I want to repent. I want to lay this down. I want to turn from it and to follow you. Brothers and sisters, let's go into a quiet time of prayer just for a minute. And let's pray together that if we sense there's a particular area, let's invite him in, allowing to heal us as we repent. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much that you're a God who wants to heal us, that you're a God who wants to fill us. I pray today, as you heard the prayers of our fellow brothers and sisters in this place, will you meet with them, Father Lord? Will you heal their hearts as they repent, as we continually lay these things down before you? Because Jesus wants to heal us and to give us that assurance. He left with us the practice of communion. He said, on the last night before he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Just take, eat, and remember me. Brothers and sisters, to heal us of our brokenness, to give us that blessing, that promise. Jesus gave himself for us. So at this time, as we take the bread together, let's remember that. That Jesus died for us. He was broken so that our brokenness would be. Let's partake in the bread together. In the same way, Jesus took the cup of the covenant and it said, this is my blood which has been poured out for you. Take, drink, and remember me. Let's also remember, not only does he heal us of our brokenness, but he also says he wants to fill us with that earnestness, with the eagerness, with his spirit. And that's why he says, take this covenant, take this cup. It's been poured out for you so that not only would you be forgiven and healed, but you may be blessed. You may be filled with his spirit. So brothers and sisters, as we partake in this together, let's remember this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for reminding us of your great love that you have for us. And as we ingested, Father Lord, the bread and the juice, as we feel it, Father Lord, going down our throats and into our stomachs, in that kind of same way, 
May we sense you, Father Lord, filling our life, filling even the dark, the locked doors of our life. May we experience your healing, Father Lord. May we experience your renewal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.